I'm a former paediatric Annie and PICU nurse. And I'm... <laughs> Guys, you're not meant to laugh that soon. And I've spotted that this podcast is wearing an oxygen mask that requires six to eight minutes to inflate. It also needs a cannula and should be propped head up. Suspicious, eh? I'm Ros Taylor. Welcome to the fantasy accident and emergency that is Romaniacs, where nothing is real. You should probably listen to this podcast quickly before the Prime Minister takes your phone away and puts it in his pocket. <laughs> it's Wednesday afternoon. Britain... <laughs> Britain is about to go to the polls. The dog whistle politics of Boris Johnson are out in full force and a man who played a prime minister in a film is doing a better job of bringing the country together than he is. But we're all still here for another week with two podcasts, one out today and another once the dust has settled on the election and we've all caught an hour or two of sleep. No. (laughs) You're overselling it. (laughs) Or not, I should be up all night at the hot LSE party. I bet you're all jealous. I've got some... (laughs) I love it. It's going to be that kind of podcast, isn't it? I've got some of our regulars here with me. Ian Dunt is editor of politics.co.uk and he's on course to be number one at Christmas on the list of most ratioed liberal commentators (laughs) on Twitter. Fuckers. Hello, Ian. Got that in early. Yes. What what tips do you have for listeners planning on staying up to watch the results come in? Just fucking drink, man. So I mean, like, I have a okay. So I have a personal problem with this, which is that I have to do, well, first all, I have to do this podcast the next day, <laughs> and I need to have some semblance of control for that. And there's a few other bits and pieces, and you know, pieces I have to hand in and bits of TV, and so I can't get too drunk. So I'm controlling it. I was thinking to like one whiskey every two hours, enough time to sort of sober up in between the whiskey. Mm-hmm. I think you can't have any other drink because you're going to get too bloated because you're drinking for about 36 hours straight. You know, you're all the way through the night and into the next day. And of course, by the time that you get into the next day, you need to keep on drinking to a certain extent just to be able to keep on functioning. So all of this is a challenge. Most people listening won't have that problem. I mean, you'll have work, obviously, but you know, I, I wouldn't trouble yourself about what goes on in the office. So just drink, just drink heavily, I think. Okay, good advice. Um, what should we make of the funeral <laughs> around the picture of the little boy on the floor of the Lee's general oh, at the infirmary? Um, it, it, what's what's more significant? Is it the tweets claiming the picture was faked, or the PM refusing to look at the picture, or Laura Kunzberg and Peston getting suckered into sharing a false story about a Labour activist assaulting Mark Hancock, or is it just one big clusterfuck? It, it is obviously one big clusterfuck, but I think that the most important moments are when it crosses from just the just the the sort of bath of sick that is the, the you know fake news and then grabs hold of ostensibly mainstream journalists so part of that yes was was sort of you know people from the bbc and from itv jumping on the punching story but i think almost more pernicious was the stuff going on with you know telegraph columnists with Some. talk radio um presenters jumping on the fake news because that's the point like when you look at the maps and stuff this stuff it can do some damage in local facebook groups you know during an election but the point where it gets taken on by people who are seen as mainstream that's the real fucking danger and at the moment they're not apologizing there's no con- there's not enough contrition there so you can't sort of push against it happening again in future well there's a time lag in the way people get their politics most people get their politics anyway that means this stuff is still circulating on facebook unchallenged basically yeah, yeah. Which is even more worrying. Um, Naomi Smith is a CEO for, of Best for Britain and current holder of the award for Best Brenda from Bristol Impressionist <laughs> on the Romaniacs team. We'll we'll ask you to do that later. <laughs> on your list of the most stressful days of the last three years, where does today rank? Actually, today is not as bad as yesterday. 
and um, we've come down a notch. We were level 11 yesterday and we're probably at a 10 now. Um, it's not too bad. Yeah, it was yesterday. I was pretty anxious we ahead of the big YouGov poll coming out. Um, I was out and about around the country in Cardiff and that really was the tale of two cities, mm. you know, incredibly positive uh, in the city centre in Cardiff Central where you've got three universities. Um, but then in Cardiff North, which is slightly more mixed, it, it felt quite challenging actually. Um, and, you know, not an area where you would be expecting to get many people saying that they were switching from Labour to the Conservatives, but there were a few too many there for my liking. Oh dear. Can I also just say that um, last time I did this podcast, um, Ian opened the entire show. His first words was twats. And this time it was fuckers. <laughs> oh, so, oh yeah. yes, I, see, I see the trend that you're pointing to. <laughs> it's great. It's great. You were out campaigning with a fellow regular Ingrid Oliver uh, in the yeah. last week. And it was her first time out in the streets for any party, mm. even though, as we know, she was a Tory member. <laughs> how, how, did, how did she oh, find yeah. it? Oh, yeah, you know, we were there in a, a Conservative Liberal marginal and we were knocking on doors and obviously she was able to say, I'm a Conservative member, but I'm telling you that you need I to vote. I used to be, yeah. yeah. I used to be a Conservative <laughs> member. No, seriously, she did very well. She was um, very persuasive on the doorsteps, as you might imagine, and I hope she enjoyed it. I think she did. Oh, good for Ingrid. Alexandre is an actor, director and writer of a pitch for a detective show starring Naomi and Ingrid based on a picture they took <laughs> together while canvassing. <laughs> Alex, have you got any cause for that show yet? Oh, shall I do the, shall I do the pitch for it? Oh, please. <laughs> have you not? I haven't okay. heard, heard that. Um, so, Jacqueline Lemon is a tough detective who has dedicated her life to bringing dangerous perps to justice, except on Sundays when she's either at church or canvassing for the Republicans. <laughs> Barbara Port is a brilliant forensic anthropologist and fun-loving bisexual, <laughs> battling, battling the cocaine addiction which brought her professional disgrace. Together they are Port and Lemon. <laughs> I do. I do want to know which one's rich. <laughs> oh, um, Ingrid is definitely the Republican. Okay. I reckon. Yeah. Have you? She's you got might, that sort of. There. She's got that sort of former Conservative member face. <laughs> Ooh. Harsh. Boris Johnson is also now predicting that there'll be a post-Brexit baby boom because of all the joy that will be created yeah. by getting Brexit done. TM. Uh, is there anything less likely to get people in the mood than Boris Johnson telling them they should be? Well, uh, the difference with this baby boom is that most of them will be Boris Johnson's children. Though, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> <laughs> Although we are headed to recession, I think, for this quarter, because uh, we all have reported two successive quarters. And um, uh, we know that, that people do stay at home and have sex and order dominoes during a recession. But we do yeah. get a boom. Well, this is what I suspected. I mean, it's going to be kind of World War II desperation sex, isn't it? Is that the kind of... Yeah, vibe? but they didn't have Netflix then. So what I suspect will happen is less babies and more binging on series. <laughs> It'll be a series binging boom. This week we saw a Tory candidate in Amber Rudd's old seat defending her belief that people with learning difficulties should be paid less because they don't understand money. Has anyone told them there isn't a competition they win for saying the most horrible thing? <laughs> Seriously, I mean, just awful. Awful. You can uh, you can actually hear it in the crowd of the hustings. Um, it, as one, they sort of there's this sharp intake of breath where they think, did she actually just, just say that? Awful. 
Today we'll be discussing tactical voting on polling day and the moments that have shaped this campaign, as well as Boris Johnson's latest shameless attack on EU migrants in Britain. And whatever happens, Romaniacs will keep on keeping on. We'll be on stage in London next Tuesday the 17th of December with our sell-out post-election show and Patreon backers already know about our first show of 2020 and where it'll be. Clue, it's in not London. (laughs) (laughs) Google Patreon Romaniacs to find out more and sign up for discounts, exclusive merchandise and lots more good stuff. But first, let's get into the only thing that matters this week, who to vote for and where. Voters supporting pro-Brexit parties will be outnumbered tomorrow, but the Tories could still secure a majority. Only 30% of Remainers need to vote tactically to prevent a Johnson majority, according to Best for Britain. If only we had somebody who could tell us firsthand what's being done at the 11th hour to get the word out about tactical voting. Naomi! Uh, Tactical voting Smith. How narrow are the polls at this stage? Is Um, there real hope of a hung parliament or is it just comforting mirage? Well, the the MRP polls will infer that, yes, there is hope. Um, We had ours out on Sunday morning um, that was uh, covered quite well in the Sunday papers and we did a press conference on Monday morning and that said that there were 36 seats that the Conservatives are predicted to win, that if they don't win means Johnson can't form a majority. And the good news being that in those seats you needed around about 1,100 tactical votes to deny the Conservative winning. And that's not, um, you know, 1,100 voters. That's 1,100 predominantly Greens and Lib Dems backing Labour, but there are some seats, of course, where it's it's Labour and Greens having to back the Lib Dem. So it's absolutely achievable, particularly when you look at the numbers of people that signed the revoke petition in those constituencies. Uh, and even in the most difficult constituency where we needed about 2,500 tactical votes, that was Bolton West, um, actually there were over 5,500 people had signed the revoke petition there. So there are lots and lots and lots of people prepared to vote tactically and actually we only needed on Sunday, Monday, about 41,000 people nationally to deny Boris Johnson a majority. Now, when the YouGov MLP came out last night, we re-ran that analysis. And in fact, it's not 36 seats anymore. It looks like it's only 30 and that it's only about 21,000 votes nationally that we're going to need to do that. So it, it is narrowing. It's just if it's narrowing fast enough for tomorrow is the big question. But it, it certainly looks to be um, slightly different feel when I'm out knocking on doors to, to, to what I'm hearing from the polls. But, you know, one is anecdata and one is, you know, numbers based evidence. So the polls, at least, are moving a bit in the right direction. Definitely, yeah. Apart from Bolton West, what are the most crucial seats in which people should vote tactically? Um, So some of the really interesting ones are places like Cheltenham, where you only need 570 votes from Labour and Greens to get behind the Lib Dems. Um, Isha, Dominic Raab's seat, is probably the scalp, the sort of the big Tory scalp that's within um, easiest reaching distance, as well as Chingford, which is in Duncan Smith. Again, only around 1,000 votes there. Um, Obviously in Isha, it's, it's... it's Labour and Greens having to go Lib Dem, whereas in Chingford um, against uh, Ian Duncan-Smith, it's it's got to be Labour that the Lib Dems and Greens are backing. But also the um, SNP seat in Aberdeen South only needs about 450 votes. Uh, for Labour in Wales, the Vale of Clwyd um, is an absolute dead heat tie at the moment. Um, both the Tories and Labour on exactly the same vote share at the moment. Um, Bolsover as well, if, if you want a seat in the north. So very, you know, very, very easily winnable seats and some of them quite juicy. And at this late stage, are the numbers more trustworthy than they were in 2017? Has the polling got better? 
the MRP algorithms have got better. Um, the underlying polls on which they're based, I'm not sure about with this election because, as, as we've spoken about a couple of times now on the show and the live show, there is still this really large number of undecideds. I'm not sure that they... So having done a lot of canvassing for different parties during this election in very, very different kinds of seats, I suspect that actually that is people who, when you're canvassing, you would mark them as won't say rather than undecided or don't know. And I suspect that the polls that have got this sort of 13% don't know, I think that's actually people who won't say, which means they're shy about it. And that's either because they're a shy Tory and they're a bit ashamed when somebody asks them from one of our parties about whether or not they would back Johnson. Or sometimes they might be a shy Corbynista that, you know, in a central London seat, they're a bit embarrassed about saying they'd be pro-Corbyn because of anti-Semitism or something. So um, I'm not entirely sure how accurate the underlying polls on which the MRP gets based are because of that. And what specific things should listeners be doing today? Ta- like absolutely pushing tactical voting in the seats where it matters. Um, on the Best of Written Twitter last night, we did the 36 seats that we think are the easiest that need the fewest number of tactical votes in order to deny Johnson a majority. So go and have a look at that thread. If you know anybody that's living in any of those seats, point them mm. towards the website. Um, making sure that you've got a plan for polling day. It's going to be wet the length and breadth of the country um, and uh, you know just nagging everyone in your life to go and vote unless you think they yeah. are a particularly right-wing lever, in which case don't don't speak to them until Friday. <laughs> can, can I add something to that? Because there was a very interesting piece yesterday on Newsnight about the level of trust people have in sort of general accounts or blue tick accounts or corporate accounts versus stuff that they see their friends and family posting. And so I think what what we need to do is get over the bump of feeling conscious about posting on our Facebook about politics and on this occasion actually do speak to our friends and family and say this is what you must do because if we're in one of those constituencies that's the thing that has real cut through. Actual people you know saying I'm planning to do X because of Y. Alex, during the new Labour years, people like Corbyn and Tony Benn may have disagreed with the party line, but they still campaign to support the party. Is there less appetite for that now the roles are reversed and it's old new Labour canvassing for Corbyn? I'm I'm not sure because I'm not I think it's moved beyond the political position. So I don't I don't whereas then their problem was with the political position they disagreed. Right now, you have candidates that are finding it difficult to campaign for Corbyn personally as a leader. And that, I think, is a different question. So I think if someone who was a lot more media savvy took over from Corbyn and and had the exact same manifesto, they might find it a lot easier to canvas and campaign for them. And I mean, on that subject, what what would you you say to a Lib Dem voter who got the tactical advice to vote Labour or a Labour voter who the sites are telling to vote Lib Dem? Is it more than just hold your nose or is there something more that we can say that to encourage them? Well, I mean, it's not we have to basically break this down in into two stages. There are the things you want and the the second obstacle to the, the to those is getting the people you like into power but the first obstacle to those is stopping johnson from grabbing power and if you if you uncouple it like that then the first bit of that what you have to do is really fucking obvious yeah to stop johnson getting his hands onto 
power. As, that, so that's as, the first step. As the the late Clive James said, a democracy is more about is more important for what it prevents than what it provides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First step, stop Johnson. And that, but there's only and there's only one caveat to that, which is on the so several sort of friends or people I've spoken to mm-hmm. over the last few weeks, where they're just like, look, I I can't. The, on the anti-Semitism issue where they're just like mm-hmm. I can't I cannot do it and I just think on that thing it's really important especially as it comes down to the wire that on either side of that divide those who feel that you can and those who feel that you can't I've written extensively on the moral conundrum of what that entails no one judges anyone on either side of that that is perfectly fine whichever way you, you fall on that issue Sure but okay so if you can't in your constituency go to the constituency next door where the Lib Dems have a chance and and canvas for them. There's still stuff that you, you know, can do, but I just mean specifically on the issue of sure, now vote for sure, Labour. Yeah. There's sure. some people who just I, can't. I get that. I, understand that. I get that completely. And there will, it would be the other way as well. And swapmyvote.uk is uh, going to be continuing to arrange vote swapping uh, until 6.59 tomorrow morning, so a minute before um, the polls open. Uh, and if you want to go and do that and you feel more comfortable about doing that so that you don't have to vote in your particular seat, if you're particularly worried about your PPC Hmm. having views that, that are pretty yeah, important yeah. to you or who haven't hmm. sufficiently apologised hmm. on behalf of their party. And I think that's actually worth thinking about after the election as well because if it doesn't go the way we hope it's going to go, there's going to be recriminations and a lot of anger and let's not get into that. And I know none of us are going to do that, but mm-hmm. please don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of Labour outriders like Aaron Bastani, uh, Alex, are getting their excuses in early by saying party leaders should not resign after the election because it causes chaos. Um, he's clearly not thinking about Johnson or Swinson. Um, but if Labour lose, is Corbyn going to cling on, do you think? And if so, how, how long can he reasonably cling on for? Um, I mean, the the answer is an obvious no, but then again, it was obviously a no last time round. So I, I don't know. I was thinking the other day that I think... Uh, there, there hasn't been a, a, an opposition leader so personally and appealing to me since Ian Duncan Smith, and it's. I think to me it's quite key that the Conservatives were so shrewd and ruthless about it that they knifed him before he even had one election, and we have someone in Corbyn that we we've let in for two elections, and there's people now making noises about a third, and I just think, what are you doing? So You're obviously hu- not interested in So there in is government. a huge amount of um, uh, jockeying for position already happening within yeah. Labour, and lots of them are doing that, and the campaign teams are formed and they're, they're ready to go. Um, but because of the looming deadlines and the tran- and the extension period ending there are even some pretty moderate voices within labor beginning to say but you know it january is not going to be the time for us to be doing a leadership election because we need to be you know all eyes on criticizing if, the, if you know, in the situation that there is a conservative majority, sure, sure. and had, so that's a slight concern. Yeah, but have, have had they been effective at criticising the government for the last three or four years? I might have agreed uh, uh, with uh, that, <laughs> but <laughs> if you know, I, it, I don't think it's a point think, we should make to them. All. Well, exactly. So I don't think it would. They could get more uh, ineffective at doing it <laughs> by re- actually Just removing you wait. the Just entire world. Okay. There's, yes, the worst is yet to come. <laughs> Welcome to our show. 
<laughs> More cheerfully, Ian, what do you think of the prospects of a hung parliament? What kind of percentage likelihood are you putting it at now? Oh, God, I don't know. Look, I mean, it's, it was within the margin of error on the Yugo poll yesterday, but of course margins go both ways. It could also be they end up with a, with a you know sort of stronger majority than, than we would expect. And there's lots of very individual fights going on. I also... I mean, like Naomi just alluded to, that most of the people I hear coming back and talking to me, journos who've been out on the doorstep with politicians or people in politics that have been doing it, aren't really sensing the shift that is shown up in the polls. Now, just like Naomi said, you go with the poll, you go with the data rather than that. But after, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm haunted, I guess, by the referendum campaign. That I remember during that, all the London journos who went out came back and went, it's looking pretty fucking bad out there. But the polls didn't seem to reflect it. And so now I, I put more store, especially when you've got lots and lots of people with lots and lots of anecdotes. It's not scientific. Who have done a lot of campaigning over many elections. Exactly. And they yeah. kind of know. Yeah. You know, you get that real feel. If this street isn't saying what I need it mm-hmm. to, then probably we're fucked. Yeah, exactly. So I don't, I've, I've, no, I'm not going to lie. Well, the betting, I, I the betting a... odds, just in case that's interesting, of a Conservative majority, this is just coming on my phone, um, are down to 69% compared to 80% two days ago. Mm-hmm. That's good. I mean, look, all of the all of that kind of stuff points in the same direction. My, I'm going into tomorrow night thoroughly expecting the worst. Like, you know, there's barely yeah. there's barely a flicker of me that has hope of, of preventing this sort of stuff. And I don't know at this stage how much of that is just an emotional defence mechanism against <laughs> getting my hopes up or how much of it is based on, on the experiences and the conversations that I've had. And if that happens, if if the Tories get a majority, will we still be emboldened if people like Ian Duncan Smith, Dominic Raag maybe get kick, uh, kicked out? Yeah, it'll be nice. You know, I want to see John Redwood lose his job. Um, I want to see Philip Davis uh, out. I, that would make me happy. But it's not going to fucking, it's not going to change. You know? No. It's not going to change very much. It's like, you know, if someone's like, oh, it turns out, you know, your, your, your uncle's passed away. But on the other hand, we've got tickets to Thorpe Park next week. And you're just like, I mean, I'll still go to Thorpe Park. But I, I would rather have the uncle. Yeah. Um, and particularly look at the some of the um, Conservative PPCs who have been selected who will gain. Mm-hmm. They're mm. potentially much worse than Our Duncan Smith. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this is a big question, but where does that put remain? Is it a hard restart where we have to begin all over again? Or have we made progress on the argument? I mean, this is a question for later, but I mean, I, my my hunch is that the way to do that is we will have to think to ourselves that is a medium term goal, not a short term goal, but not a long term goal either. When people are like, it's fucked for a generation, that won't be the case. But it is, realistically, it's going to be something like five years. If we're unlucky, it'll be something like 10. So remain rejoin whatever will be part of a package of liberal defense against a profoundly authoritarian nativist populist government and we are going to be fighting many many fucking battles if they get a majority all at once for the next few years and it require a lot of work and it'll be part of that package but it won't necessarily be the headline issue that we're doing at any given moment Alex, the weather's looking pretty ordinary on Thursday uh, but it could be rainy or even snowy in the north Um, how big a factor do you think that could be? Uh, I've been looking at loads of studies that say the the takeaway is that if it's very, very cold, that tends to discourage older voters. If it's very, very wet, then it tends to be time poor voters that um, are hit hardest because they basically don't have all day to wait for a window for the weather to break so they can go out. They have, you know, two hours after work. And if it's pouring down, they might think, you know what? I'm not going to do it. 
But what what I was thinking today is an, another message that we have to get out to everyone is that, you know, despite the individual seat results, every vote does count because I think that popular if vote. Johnson gets into government but doesn't have a popular mandate, um, you know, for Brexit. So if the popular mandate, when you add all the parties saying second referendum, is significantly higher in in number terms to the mandate that Johnson gets, then he does have yeah. a political problem. And I don't think it's, it's going to be as easy as all that for the next five years. Mm-hmm. So in an alternate reality to Ian's very bleak one, um, I also foresee a situation where basically they heave a sigh of relief, they get into parliament, they pass the withdrawal agreement, and then at the moment they start discussing trade agreement, um, the people who want a harder Brexit, the people who want a softer Brexit begin to divide again. And I can see him losing votes on that around springtime, unless he has a very big majority. That's possible. That is possible. And it can can all unravel. And that's why I think it's important to have whoever the yeah. new leader when, of the when, opposition when, when is the in headline, place at that time. When the, when the headline YouGov polls, uh, numbers came out in the, their poll last night, I did think I, I'm almost at the stage where I'll take that. And I think we could eat into that kind yeah. of a majority. Yeah. That was kind of 14, 18 seat majority easily. I think we can eat into yeah. that and it, it definitely wouldn't be game over. Because he hasn't purged the party as much as people would like to think of well, all we, moderates. The thing is, we could eat into but Yeah, but all of it would be taking place once Brexit had happened. This is the thing that we, we can soften the impact of it we can keep the relationship closer but even if he had a two two seat majority he'd have enough i think on the basis i don't think in those early days yes, of the administration the anyone would rebel yeah sure. he would still sure, get sure, sure. so if there is going to be an election in spring 2020 for one reason or another i mean can can we actually face that all over again or are we all brenda from bristol now uh, Naomi, I is understand. <laughs> I understand you can do a really good impression of Brenda from Bristol. Not another one. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way that whenever anyone brings it up, you're just on it immediately. There's no like, oh, I don't know if and, I should do. And it. what you can't see, listeners, is that she also does the face. <laughs> <laughs> she transforms into Brenda. <laughs> what really makes government work? And why do things go wrong? What's really going on in the engine room of policy? Every week in Inside Briefing from the Institute for Government, we look at who and what determines the way that we are governed. You don't just leave a pot of money on the side of the road for businesses to pick up. Three and a half years after the referendum, six months after we were supposed to have left, every single option is on the table. We're obviously in a very odd time where things can change in a matter of minutes. You can get Inside Briefing from the Institute for Government every week on your favourite podcast app. As important as it's been, at times this general election campaign has been as full of enthusiasm as the Prime Minister on Father's Day. (laughs) (laughs) But what were the moments that defined it and may shape the result? We've asked our regulars to choose the key turning points of the campaign that is finally almost over. Alex, what's the standout moment for you? Um, an an honourable mention must go to please leave my town. Oh, and, also, and also there's no press here. Um, and I know it's weird because they feel like they were a million years ago, but they were actually part of this same campaign. Shit, but, but I thought that was before. 
well, or in the build, the sort of campaign. Yeah, it was the build up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it was after he had called the election, but be- before the official purge, if that makes sense. But for me, the standout moment uh, has to be Andrew Neil's uh, monologue. He's literally taken to- all of mine. I'm on my sorry, <laughs> it was Andrew Neil's monologue to Canberra, <laughs> and I think that will, I think that will come to be seen as important for years to come, actually. Naomi, have you got anything else? Yeah, I do have one left, um, and that was uh, happened this week, which was um, when Boris Johnson nicked Joe Pike's phone. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just I think it's, that's incredible, it's extraordinary, absolutely isn't it? extraordinary. Um, even for Boris Johnson, that is so Trumpian. Um, yeah, that, definitely that one. After the other ones I had on my list, which were and they're written down in front of me. That Andrew Neil interview that wasn't with the PM, please leave my town. But I also get in the fridge, which happened today, which was as we're recording today, listeners. Um, so then, funny. Good morning, Britain, live. Uh, and they try and interview <laughs> Boris Johnson. He just gets so desperate not to be interviewed after his aide has mouthed profanities <laughs> at the camera. Um, he, he manages to go and try and get inside a he gets big inside in- the freezer. industrial but, fridge. Yeah. But it is probably really hot up in Pudsey and Lee <laughs> <laughs> on a December morning. <laughs> He probably just got a bit warm and he was looking for some respite. Ian, what was your defining moment? Uh, well, Naomi has stolen mine uh, as some kind of domino effect from Alex's original receiving. <laughs> okay, so, it is, so it's, it's the phone thing together with um, the Mar interview that he did after the London terror attack. The, the reason for these sort of two occasions is because they are there were moments where we actually saw something about Johnson's character more than we knew. More than I had really anticipated, to be honest, because I always just thought of him as believed in nothing, completely self-interested. Whatever he says is just to do with his own advancement. And suddenly you're like, in those moments, you're like, it's a bit worse than that, actually. Like, there's something quite dark in you. There's something quite mean and uncaring. Like, sinister. But, yeah, mm. sinister. Yeah. Mm. You felt it like if, if you're in a position where like a young man and a young woman have died, who campaign for penal reform, for that, that is literally what... Not campaign, they work in it. Yeah, yeah. Pardon. That is literally what their lives are about and where the, the father of one of them is saying, don't politicise it and especially don't politicise it in the exact opposite of my son's political values. And he just looked at Johnson during that moment he just, he didn't give a fuck. No. He really, it wasn't like, he didn't, there was no hesitancy. No. You know what I mean? It was just, no, no. he didn't give a fuck. And that's exactly what was going on in his face when he got showed that phone with a child on the floor. He didn't give a fuck. And there's something there, there's something really quite fucking poisonous about him that is that could suddenly be revealed in those moments that you wouldn't get by interview after interview after interview, the moments of where you see the actual human character mm. of someone. And mm. what we saw, I think, was quite disturbing. And is that the kind of thing that really makes a difference and cuts through to voters? Because for me, the picture on the phone was the standout thing. That would just cut through as a... And as I thought, it, there might be an NHS kind of moment in this election. It turned out that there that there was. But do do does any of this stuff really cut through to voters or have they switched off so much now that they're not listening anymore? I think some of that stuff can. I think it can by virtue of how personal it is. Now, do you remember when um, Ed Miliband... Uh, during the, his election campaign in 2015. And it had been ages since the shit with David Miliband. Ages and ages and ages. And so everyone in politics had sort of fucking forgotten about the stuff that, you know, this had your brother in the back of everyone. And then suddenly when it came to voters, they really fucking remembered that because it was just so immediate and colourful and almost Shakespearean. And the point where you're showing the Prime Minister the picture of a child on the floor of a hospital and he won't look at it, that kind of stuff is immediate. 
And it can have an effect. We don't know how widely it's been seen, although there was some sort of focus group stuff that came out this morning that suggested that people were, uh, especially sort of female voters, were really quite appalled by, by the look of it. So there's some evidence of it. And I think that kind of stuff can cut through. And, and I think it has sorry, because go. when you, um, so our MRP, the field work closed for that two days before YouGov's, and we've seen this you know, not insignificant shift in it. That it's it's basically we had um, shown that his majority lead had halved in the fortnight since we'd done our last one, and it's halved again between now and um, and YouGov's in terms of the number of votes we need to deny it. So, I I think that some of these things must have had an impact over the last forty eight hours. And I I spoke to a number of canvassers yesterday, all of whom were saying that everyone was aware of that mirror front page and that photo and what had happened. Mm. They were surprised. And I think the reason it matters is because the niggling doubt in the back of the mind of some Northern Labour Brexit supporters who are thinking, let's just vote for Johnson so we can get our Brexit, the niggling doubt would have been something like, can we trust him with the NHS? Mm. And this sort of story completely cuts through to that fear. So they may not vote for Labour, but they may sit on their hands because of something like this. And actually, Johnson actively needs to flip them to take those seats. Mm. He can't take those seats just by making some of them inactive as voters. So I think it will matter. Ian, how do you feel the final debate between Corbyn and Johnson went? Because I... Yeah, you know, I really struggled to watch it. I feel quite... No, I don't feel really sorry, but people hoping that Johnson would enliven politics in some ways, uh, in some way, and make, make the whole business more exciting must be so disappointed because it was it was it was not just it was not just boring i mean it was it was actively off-putting for me but do you think that it made many difference in the last few days of the campaign i don't think it made much difference corbyn needed the breakthrough and he and he didn't get it and he had chances there on sort of nhs and social care and he, he didn't take them he and he didn't make it um i didn't really hate it that much i was sort of i watched it and i was thinking this isn't too bad there's more content here than usual and then i was surprised when i put on twitter and everyone was like fuck this is the worst shit i've ever seen in my life because i just thought this is not that bad so i've been i've been re-watching the uh, star wars basically all of the star wars films in order to try and get ready for the, for the last one coming out in december um and something happens to you when you're watching the three prequels which is that you develop this sort of stockholm syndrome for sort of wooden acting and abysmal scripting and some of the worst direction <laughs> i've ever seen in my fucking life and some highly questionable racial motifs cast on various <laughs> alien species <laughs> and so it's obviously it's i mean it's a hellish experience actually it, not worth it at all and i do not recommend it but then when you get to the third one you're sort of like this isn't so bad actually but then you're like well actually is it is it actually fucking terrible or am i just so trapped in this crap that i can't even tell anymore <laughs> and i think maybe that that's what was happening with the last debate where i'm just and I've British politics in general. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> would, yeah. would that imply that we are basically just before a new hope? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, either that or Rogue One, where everyone <laughs> fucking dies. Spoiler, by the way. <laughs> Alex, the Tories appear to be shifting more towards the make it stop line of the Lib Dems, ironically. How can Brexit be both the best thing that's ever happened to this country and something we absolutely have to get sorted so that we can stop <laughs> worrying, start worrying about everything else? Well, it can't. Yeah. It can't. And it won't be. Um, and I worry about that as well, you know, because actually I think there's going to be an awful lot of 
anger when, you know, six months down the line or a year down the line, Brexit isn't done. Mm. Um, and and the problem is that what I've noticed recently is that because there's a there's a, a sort of lack of direction to anger, to public anger, I'm not sure it will be funneled in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite easy to put a little roadblock here and say, hate Muslims or put a little, you know, dam there and say it's all the immigrants' fault. Mm-hmm. Um Because it's generalized, the sense of rage and frustration feels really generalized. And I think that's a really dangerous situation to be in. But then looking across the pond, and I think that's also quite important what's happening this week, because if that blooms into some sense that there is accountability actually for um, people who behave badly, I think that will have repercussions all around the world. I think if we have a recession, it will have uh, repercussions. I think that's what will kind of switch the, the the dialogue a little bit and change things up. But I mean, I don't want to see a recession, obviously, but I fear it may be the only thing that kind of just concentrates people's minds a bit more on uh, realities of the economics yeah. of it. Reforming electoral law in this Christmas uh, is seen as a bit of a lost cause. Um, but in the next few years, how can we build a better consensus against Johnson if we can't convince the left leaning parties to pay in ice? Is there anything we can do? I mean, it's, it, it's extraordinary that electoral reform by this new Conservative Party claiming to append the establishment and electoral reform is the only thing that's not on their radar at all. I don't mm. think it's mentioned but once. But bloody boundary changes you know, well, and that's the exactly. big danger exactly. with any kind of Conservative oh, majority. Absolutely. And I, and I think what... And that will focus the minds of the left. But what Ian was identifying as the poison he's noticed in Johnson's character more recently... I think that's what it is. I think he's revealing himself to be an autocrat, which I hadn't also no- noticed before. Mm. He re- he's revealing himself to to be someone who doesn't like to be challenged and who will actually do anything in, in, it takes to avoid being challenged. And that's a really scary prospect with a prime minister with a majority. That stuff with his dad was interesting, wasn't it? And it's not. I don't want to. You know, you are not your the people you know or your friends or your wife or whatever. For sure. But the fact that his dad sits on that sofa and quite instinctively just said, everyone's a fucking moron. You know, the country's mm. made of morons. People are morons. Mm. We're the clever ones. You sort of think, growing up with that, you know, when you... It's you go, have an effect. Yeah, mm. yeah, that shit sinks in, man. And it's not as if, you know, there isn't any evidence that Boris Johnson thinks that way himself. Yeah. Naomi, the Lib Dems at the time of recording don't look as if they'll improve on their seats total. And if the election does go badly for them, what is the reappraisal going to look like? Is Swinson going to stay in post? Well, uh, remember she lost her seat in 2015. Um, so it's a pretty marginal seat, East Dunbartonshire. Uh, though you would expect that the leader will usually be returned because of um, their much higher uh, profile in the media um, and because how much money headquarters will spend defending the leader's seat. Um, I, I, you know, I think it's it, I, it's probably right that they do have an appraisal um, of of the leadership. Um, there is actually in the constitution an automat there's an automaticity to six months after a general election um, to automatically the conference looks at, at, at whether or not to replace the leader in the event that the leader hasn't won. Um, and I, I, I agree with the analysis that I suspect they won't vastly improve their seat total from 2017. Um, I think it's unlikely that they will hold 
any of their new MP seats, so the, the defections. Um, uh, there's a couple, particularly in the cities of London, Westminster, uh, potentially Finchley, um, with tactical voting that they could um, hold on to. Um, they will probably also lose a couple of other sort of old Lib Dem seats. Um, it's not looking great for for one of their Scottish seats at least, um, and even one of their London seats is looking a bit tricky. Uh, but they may well pick up some of the Conservative Liberal marginals. I'm very hopeful that they'll win St Albans and potentially Winchester as well. So I think the net effect, as you say, will be be broadly similar. And um, the the big problem that they've got at the moment is that they have had an enormous number of donations from some pretty significant donors who have previously given to the other two big parties, very fed up with them and, and sort of saw the Lib Dems as having the chance to break through this time. And of course, they haven't. Um, so that's going to be, I think, a, another difficult exercise for them um, to have to explain why they took many millions and weren't able to convert that into votes or seats. I do find it a bit of a mystery personally as to why Swinson seems to have been going down so badly with voters in their personal ratings are just not good and you know I don't want to say it's because she's a woman because that's kind of (laughs) it's a bit too knee-jerk but at the same time I do think that there is that element going on that she's a little bit playing a bit too much the Hillary Clinton in this Mm. yeah no I you I was listening avidly as you said that in the live show last week um and and I'm sure that that is a part of it um but I also think it was a big mistake when you haven't yet got popularity and you haven't yet got a brand and you haven't been leader for a couple of years before an election to make yourself the focus front and centre and you know actually have this zoomed up picture of your face on absolutely every bit of collateral um, will, for those people who either don't know you or don't have a firm opinion of you, if that's their first real interaction with you, it looks like narcissism and it doesn't look like it's not you know, very British to sort of want mm. to cast yourself. Mm. It goes down better in, in America, I would imagine. And than, Europe, yeah. Um, than here. So I think that probably also had a part to play. Finally, in unpleasant but not shocking news, Boris Johnson has made one last roll of the xenophobic dice in this campaign by saying EU migrants have been able to treat the UK as though it's basically part of their own country for too long. Remember, this is, listeners, this is the guy who was born in New York. <laughs> um, it was a rehash of vote leave talking points, which are still just as depressing three years later. Alex, we always knew Johnson thought this way or was perfectly prepared to be seen to be thinking this way if it suited him. Yeah. Are we hearing this now because he feels the polls are on his side and it doesn't matter if the whole country can see him doing it? Um, I don't think that's the motivation. I think the motivation is actually a little bit of panic at the polls moving in an unfavourable direction. He's trying to fire up his base, mm-hmm. basically. Um, otherwise, it's not a subject he would have touched because the voters he's trying to win over, we won't play very well with them. But he needs his canvassers, his you know volunteers and everything to be fired up. Um, I mean, it it's horrible, um, but it's Brexit. <laughs> and so it, it just for, you know, it, it is just one scene in the three prequels that is just falls into a, a swimming pool full of shit. <laughs> Clearly he also... Brexit he, is so episode two, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> he also feels he can say this because EU migrants can't vote against him. Of course, if Johnson wins, how do we best support EU migrants in the system we have? Um. I think it will lose a lot of 
EU migrants. I think the the group will shrink um, genuinely, and I think with them, a lot of people who are part of the family will mm-hmm. also go. Um, it'll it'll be difficult, um, but I think the economics will speak for itself. Actually, I think they will need to pivot in this very, very quickly because they will find themselves without enough people to wipe people's bums in nursing homes and, you know, staff hospitals. And and they will um, have to turn around on this because there's simply not enough time to switch to a nativist strategy that encourages people to have loads of babies. And so the economics on this will be absolutely merciless. You need to produce a workforce or import it. There is no other way. And so you can't be the party who resents immigrants and also who resents poor people having loads of babies. You need one or the other. There is nothing in Or the between. ability to afford robots. And we yes. won't be able to afford them. Or actually a willingness to accept a shrinking economy, which is you know, another way to go. You can manage that. But if you, if all your predictions and all your future plans rely on an expanding economy, you need an expanding population. I mean, it really isn't, isn't rocket science. So you will have to pivot on that. Naomi, is this the biggest weapon we have against people who think Johnson is actually a social liberal at heart? Because uh, you can point to him being borderline racist here. Um... <laughs> I've I've been really struck by how few people are willing to accept that somebody who is being a racist is a racist. Um, it's it's almost like the Godwin's law of you know once you've called somebody a you know Nazi online then you've lost the argument. Um, and and the, there's this sort of yeah real belief of you know wanting to see the best in in people even when they're saying truly truly horrible things. Um, so I'm not entirely sure it works. And I also worry that, you know, there are a lot of racist people in the country. You know, we, we've often talked about this in the past, about um, the shock and surprise of the bourgeois centrist liberals that all of a sudden right-wing populism seems to be gaining traction. And I'm always the one going, no, remember, 10 years ago, the BNP were winning council seats up and down the country. Mm-hmm. They were getting MEPs elected, like... The, the far right are never very far away. They're just legitimised by the headline yeah. politicians at, at various different points throughout history. Um, and and they do well when they're allowed to do well because there are, you know, not an insignificant number of people who agree with them. And, and the only way you can counteract it is with evidence. Yep. And what's happened in the last four years is that evidence has been consistently Marginal. attacked mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have a mother posting a photo of her child on a hospital floor and immediately this operation springs into being that says she m- m- somehow made it up. Mm-hmm. And it's or, really oh, the difficult. the father in the yeah. hospital, well, he was just a Labour supporter. It was all staged. And it's very, very, very difficult mm-hmm. when people have built in the lie to counteract it. They have to come into the to the realisation themselves, which is why I said I think the most significant thing that will happen in the next year will be that Brexit is not done. And actually, if you stop pushing the point and let people come to the conclusion themselves, that yeah. he lied to them, they will eventually. I think this point on racism is really important because we've really given up on the social norm around it. 
because we're not willing to use the word. Mm. Like for years, mm. almost for decades, you know, there was this thing where, you know, the, the constant refrain you'd hear is, oh, you're not allowed to raise problems about immigration because they'll call you a you're racist. racist. Actually, yeah, you're a racist. The precise, opposite, the precise yeah. opposite has happened, which is that now we're afraid of using the word racist when yeah. people say racist things because yeah. that became such a consensus view mm. that mm. people were allowed to express the, the legitimate concerns. Mm. Of well, mm. all of these things aren't fucking legitimate concerns. Mm. And the things that Boris Johnson has written are racist. Mm. That is what they are. That is an accurate, objective description of what they are. It's about fucking time, frankly, that we start using that word more where we see legitimate instances of it and trying to firm up these social norms that will stop some of the decline that we're looking at right now. Mm. Actually, Aaron Jones did it on homophobia yesterday. He did a, he did a pretty... I saw that clip. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was good. Good, good video, yeah, actually. Was a, like, but calling people bumboys, do you accept that, that is homophobic? And squirm, 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 squirm around mm-hmm. it. And it's exactly the same point you're making mm-hmm. with regards to racism. And we all need to call it out far more. And uh, support Hope Not Hate, who are the best anti-racism organisation in the UK. A lot of this just comes down to just, we've got to have the fucking confidence. We've got to stop apologising all the time for being liberal, for wanting immigrants... For, for having a, a metropolitan attitude towards things like, fuck that. Just stop apologising. Yeah, exactly. Stand up for your goddamn principles and make it clear that they don't get to go over the line. That's the poison of the term virtue signalling. Hmm. You know, that it makes you second guess of whether, you know, by actually not being a complete and utter dickhead, I'm somehow signalling to the world I'm better than you. <laughs> well... Guess what? I am fucking better than you. And I will signal it to my heart's content. And I'm a vegan, so I'm better than you. <laughs> and here we part company. <laughs> Ian, during last week's live show, you spoke about the need to work harder to protect the rights of migrants. Um, how can we motivate people on a scale comparable to the People's Vote marches against things like Yars Wood, which, are, as you were saying, are disgusting? I mean, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I'm not going to... The benchmark isn't, you know, the, the people's vote marches or anything like that. I mean, basically, it's that we need to have a coherent, proud, pro-migrant campaign in this country. And that is not like... The, the groups that work for this stuff, the JCWI, the 3 million, but these guys are fucking amazing. Like, they do amazing work, let alone all of the, refu- the various refugee groups. There's, there's really quite a few of them who well away from public view, go hard on legal cases, help out people in detention centres, no one ever fucking even notices they exist. They do brilliant work. It does feel like there needs to be a more coherent public voice for this stuff. Along the lines of sort of what you got from Shami Sakrabati during the Tony Blair years, where there was just a sense of like, here is a person who is coherently putting the civil liberties case against the stuff that's going on that most people in most households would recognise. That we need coherence to that campaign. And it's not just about opposing the negative stuff. It's also about making, highlighting positive stories. And that stuff, this is the bit that's not really rabble because it's ultimately what that is, is really canny PR workers, guys that are looking at news stories, finding the angle that relates to immigration, getting it in newspapers, and you can get that shit in the Daily Mail, you can get it in the Daily Express when yeah, you yeah. pick the right mm-hmm. stories. You don't make it about immigration, you make it about the story, but enough enough months doing that, enough years doing that, you build up this background sense of a more nuanced, complex idea around these issues. And, and maybe some sort of unionisation, because the other... The other thing that feels very real to me is that, you know, migrants are assaulted on a daily basis at the moment, but they have no way to organize mm. in a way that they mm. can, for instance, mm. withdraw their labor, mm. Mm. which would really send a fucking message. Mm. Mm. That would really signal 
what this country is like when the mm. you know the the borders go up but and they the doors are closed. But they need to be protected because they are the people who protected. feel Absolutely. most at risk of Absolutely. losing their job if they But you have you know you have heads of unions with significant migrant numbers mm. paying their dues mm-hmm. in those unions that do not represent those members at all. Mm. Oh, and my, that needs uh, with, to with stop. honourable exception, I would say, of my with honourable exception. Oh yeah, he's yeah. yeah, he's a hero. We're at the end of our last show before the election, which means it's time for the Brexit time capsule—the box of wonders we'll dig out of the chlorinated soil of Brexit Britain if we leave the EU. Ian, last week Dorian reversed Alex's decision to put the time capsule inside the time livid. capsule. I am livid. Would you like to reverse the reversal? No, I, th- I think we probably need to bring this causal chain to a stop now. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I? Oh, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to. So I, I know this is like a fucking parody of myself, but I'd like to put in uh, Superman comics and specifically uh, the run by Brian Michael Bendis on action comics and Superman right now. And there was a thing uh, the other day about. It went up online about, you know, in, in Warner Brothers, they're like, oh, is super, how do we make Superman relevant? And a bunch of people were just like, if, if you've got to ask that question, you must never be allowed this fucking near this fucking property because you clearly do not understand how it functions. <laughs> the current Superman run, it, it, one of the main themes in it is this idea of politeness and civility. And that when you have a lot of power, as he does, you treat people kindly and politely and you have some fucking manners. <laughs> I guess when I do use the phrase fucking manners, it, it sort of reduces the force of the argument, but nevertheless, there's some manners about how you conduct yourself. You treat people nicely, you clean up after yourself. This really basic stuff. And so without ever mentioning anything about Donald Trump or any of that, it is just this implicit riposte to that attitude of like, with power comes this ability to just shrug people off, to treat people badly, to appeal to the most reptile parts of the human brain. So... Yeah, for our little fucking wasteland, I want those Superman comics. I'm taking those fuckers with me. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, This week's foreign language clip is in Finnish and it's from Lydia Wishart, whose dad Tom sent it in. It's her ninth birthday on Friday the 13th, so happy birthday, Lydia. Mm. Happy birthday. That's so cute. Olen Lydia ja olen puoliksi englantilainen ja en halua, että minun toinen kotimaani eroaa Euroopan ystävyyskerhasta. That means I'm Lydia and I'm half English and I don't want my other home country to leave the European Friendship Club. Oh. <laughs> we agree, Lydia, we agree. Oh, Lydia. Oh, fucking hell, you ruined us. Jesus. Well said, we should always call the EU the European Friendship Club. <laughs> We're always on the lookout for more foreign language clips, so record something good and short on your phone and send it to info at romaniacs.com. And that's it for today. Thanks to Ian, Alex and Naomi. We'll be back on Friday with an emergency podcast on the election result. Now it's time for our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. Visit ampleplay.co.uk for a free download of this track and to find out about their new album, England is a Garden, out in March 2020. Here's some thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hold tight, everyone. We'll see you on the other side. Hello and kala Christuyena. From me to Eamon Clark, Mahbubur Rashid, Sam Kaplan, Dan Williams, Chris Neal, Dave the Hammer Parry, 
Ben Atkins and Pauline Card. Major festive thanks from me to Daniel Templer, Adrian Thompson, Carol Megram, Fabienne Rangiard, Todd, Bill Brazier, James McGregor and Oliver Bostridge. Hello and vamos cabrones from me, Graham Roberts, Alex, Richard House, Shanine Salmon, Holy Mo, Oliver Elton, Caroline Warner and Jenny Daly O'Kane. And finally, all the best at Christmas and thank you from me to Robin Kellett Navalu, Gareth Owen, Mark Goodfellow, Elaine Anderson, Charles Partridge, Brendan O'Connor, Michael Kelly and Louis Powell. See you all on Friday. Romaniacs was produced and presented by Ros Taylor with Ian Dunt, Naomi Smith and Alexandre. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison and Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. 